Yo, my dogs go heat, control the whole street. And when it's time to bust, I'm here today with Ana Maria Quintana, who is somebody that I met last year when I was in Los Angeles for the first Latinx Podcasterio Fest. And she's also a fellow Yale. We both went to Yale University. And we're talking here today to Rise to Reunite, which is a nonprofit that provides legal assistance and services to migrants, refugees, and deportees at the Tijuana border. So just before getting more into our conversation, Ana Maria, I wanted to have you say a bit more about your background and talk about why you wanted to talk about Rise to Reunite. Good morning, everyone. Um, let's see. My name is Ana Maria Quintana. I am a product of the Southeast Los Angeles area in California, Calexale, and I got, invite, I got involved in this for several reasons. I am an attorney. I almost wrote an elected official and the vice mayor for the city of Spell. And the composition of my community is composed um, entirely of Latinos. And we have a small population of folks from Lebanon and Pakistan. So we have a Muslim community that's very visible. So I got involved in this movement simply because of the changes in the political uh, policies that are being implemented right now. And I felt that there was a duty to get involved simply because of the composition of my community. And are you talking about at the city level, policies were changing? I mean, I'm talking about the country, right? So when we, when we, when our president um, got elected, one of the first things that he did besides, you know, insulting our community, I mean, he instituted the Muslim ban ban for those countries. And my community was affected by it because, again, some of these folks travel there. Right. Do you have a particular story of that time that really stands out to you? Well, during the entire time, we, when we first got elected, so I got elected in 2011, but there was a, I had a re-election in 2017. So during that time period when um, I teach, I do a very grassroots campaigning, and mm-hmm. just to provide a little bit of context, my city, the city of Bell, is the city that made headlines back in 2010 because it was a very, it was known for that political scandal where the city manager basically had polluted the city. Oh, okay. Do you remember that, 2010? Mm-hmm. I didn't hear about that. No, okay, so basically for those who don't remember, the city manager, Ross Rizzo, from the city of Bell, siphoned millions of city dollars into his own paycheck and pension and provided generous paying benefits to all city staff and officials complicit in the scheme. The mm-hmm. aftermath left our city almost bankrupt. That was, in 20, that was in the summer of 2010 where the LA Times discovered it. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, you know, seven years later, having elections, the city is, is much, in a much better situation than it was. But nonetheless, this is a poor, hardworking community. Mm-hmm. So in 2017, when I, the reason why I do very grassroots campaign is because one of the aspects of the scandal is that our residents lost hope in our government system, right? There's no trust when you have elected officials and you have city hall staff that are essentially not doing what they're supposed to do and they're robbing you of opportunities. So I do grassroots for that reason, so that we are in front of the community making sure that they are involved and that they are fully aware of what's happening at our, at our local level. In the process of meeting with those people, the fear is very real. So this is what when I started talking for this particular campaign was in January 2017. So the apprehension was there. Mm-hmm. So talking to residents there, you know, I'm an attorney. Everybody knows I'm an attorney. So there were tons of conversations with people welcoming into their homes, but not to talk about politics, but to talk about the political climate. What do we do when this happens? You know, I have a family that's here. I have family that's over there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if I should tell my kids to take this. I don't know what to tell my, you know, 18-year-old 
you know, what they're doing. At this point, I'm carrying copies of my backstory, et cetera, et cetera. So the fear was definitely very real. And I mean, I just, I've always been involved. So what happened with Rights to Reunite is that a group of professionals, a lot of my friends and colleagues, formed a group of, again, trying to get green resources. And the focus of the Rights to Reunite is really to reunify, well, like, you know, reunify families. So there are artists, there are lawyers, there are psychologists, et cetera, et cetera. The group of lawyers in Rights to Reunite decided to join forces with a nonprofit called Al Otro Lado. And oh yeah, I'm aware of Otro Lado. Um, uh, we go down to Tijuana and provide um, legal guidance to a lot of these families who are seeking asylum at the border. Mm-hmm. They go to a legal point of entry, and again, our focus is to make sure that as they are processed, that there is no further separation of the families. And so, did this nonprofit arise out of the family separation policy that the Trump administration oh. rolled out Correct. this summer? Okay. Correct. So, right to reunite, you know, step on that. I mean, you see, now you see the coverage and you see the inability, right? So, we all felt a little bit powerless. So, we decided to turn forces as a group and see what we together could do. That's great. And what role do artists play in The role that the artist makes, one, is awareness. Well, all of us are responsible to bring awareness to the, to, you know, to the call that we're doing. We have a lot of fundraisers. One of our goals that we realized is that... <clears throat> Again, resources are limited, and what we've done thus far is that we have and encourage lawyers to go on weekends and offer volunteer services. But we really do need someone that's there all the time. Yeah, I, definitely. For example, mm-hmm. I, for example, I'm a real estate attorney. I do real estate finance. I, you know, I have foundations, but there's nothing like having someone who's an expert in immigration. Mm-hmm. And again, this, has, this is incredibly unprecedented, and the need is great. So to give you context, when I first went there, it was during the summer, I went with um, Rights to Unite when it was started, and they had, uh, there's an incredible line, right? People are trying to be positive. When I first got there, I think the number, if I remember correctly, was 35, because people go to the border and they're not positive, et cetera, et cetera, and they're given this number, which, by the way, is unconstitutional, that should not be taking place. But the number at that time was 35. I just went a couple of weeks ago, and the number now is in the thousands. And it's not like they give a thousand to individual they don't give a number to an individual they give a number to a group of people that go there at this point i don't even know that they i don't i can't even imagine that they have a record of how many people have gone there sorry can you clarify what what these numbers mean literally these numbers um should not be given so what happens is that you have these families that go down to the border to the political to the entry and are want to get processed since there's an incredible line, numbers are given to them and told you need to come back later because there's a line. Well, like when you go to the butcher shop and you take a number, they're, they're given a number in that way and told to wait until their number it, comes up. Correct. But literally, these are little pieces of paper that are given. So we have really no idea. We don't, I mean, we don't... Those numbers are, first of all, there shouldn't be a wait list. There shouldn't be... People shouldn't be recorded and asked to come back later. I mean, the right, the because they have a legal right to seek asylum at the port of entry. So the so. They, exactly. So the moment you, they go there and they basically surrender and you give them a number, you're essentially making them vulnerable because people there are there being identified. So it's almost, it's, almost, it's almost worse. Because at that point, they're easy prey. They are waiting to be processed and whatever dangers they might be fleeing from, are fully aware that they're essentially sitting ducks there. Mm-hmm. 
I so I haven't worked with Al Otro Lado, but I have worked with Pueblos Sin Fronteras. I went there last spring uh, to do asylum workshops and intakes at in Puebla uh, before the caravana arrived in Mexico City, and I thought that that was a very powerful experience because I think the immigration laws in the U.S. have changed you know, significantly recently, and people aren't aware of all these policy changes like mandatory detention and family separation at the border. I thought that that was among the most powerful work that I've done within the immigration world because of the fact that I felt at, I felt better knowing that people were at least making an informed decision. Like, these are really terrible choices, and there isn't really any ideal route to take, but I felt better knowing that people if people did want to turn themselves in at the port of entry that they knew exactly what that would mean for them because i currently hate seeing people languishing in detention centers and knowing that not everybody that presented themselves knew what that would mean um did you have you had a similar experience in working with rise to reunite oh yeah it's funny what we did basically what a little does it's very organized Organization. So what we do is we partner up with someone from another lado, and we're assigned to go to one of the many shelters that exist that are in Tijuana. Mm-hmm. So we literally go to one of these shelters and set up shops. We have computers, we have printers, etc. We basically create clinics there, and the folks who are at the shelter are getting legal advice. And yes, there's definitely situations in which families have been informed of what their rights and protections are, and told that this might not be the way to go about you know maybe it's not worthwhile to take the risk of separating the families in order to seek what you know to seek entry into the u.s so there's definitely lack of information um taking place um i went into again i've been down to the board a couple times and i went to two different instances one the first time that i went down there it was before the caravan so the families that were that we were serving were literally i actually had that they were, I wouldn't say more, more informed, but I think I had a, they had a better idea of what their rights and protections were. And I think, I, I gather that it's because a lot of the families that we were in servicing at the time were from part of Mexico where they were a little bit just much more organized. When, when the caravan came through, then that situation changed a little bit differently. It was definitely different. I think a lot of people were misinformed and were receiving this information along the way, which really fascinated me. I am an organizer. I used to be an organizer with this. I was trained with the I and I have farm workers and I have humanitarian work. I went to college law school, so we did, you know, we did a lot of that stuff. And I happened to be in, in New York City at Columbia Law when 9-11 hit. So I dealt with a lot of families um, that were, you know, suffered in the aftermath there. Mm-hmm. So what I did personally was I focused on identifying minors because you saw that there were a lot of children there that were unaccompanied. So... Myself and a couple group of attorneys, when we were at the center, looking, um, trying to see what it is the services were needed. I focused on identifying kids because they were by themselves, etc. And a lot of those kids were encouraged to join the caravan. A lot of those kids were encouraged to come with very little guidance. Um, at the same time, when you talk to them, you realize that their fear and the threats that they were facing in their own particular country justified them coming. I mean, they quite honestly were fleeing. So our task was to gather those minors and take them to a shelter that were protecting other minors. 
And one of the things that struck me that was um, very heartbreaking is that throughout the day, I was able to find 19 young gentlemen, young boys, quite honestly, and took them to the shelter. But I wasn't able to find any young women at all. And that literally doesn't make any sense because we were talking to the families, we were talking to the people there, and there were young ladies that were traveling in the caravan, but they would not come out. And the young gentlemen, the young boys, when we were asking them, inquiring, they went to school. They're like, they're around. Where, where are they? Um, I don't know. They're around. Let's, you know, let's do this, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just very noticeable. There's no way that you can find 19 boys and no girls there. People are talking about them, but they're nowhere to be found. Hmm. That's interesting. For when you say unaccompanied minors, do you mean people that are coming without their parents, or people who who are coming completely by themselves with no family? Because I know that there's people who get classified as unaccompanied minors who actually did come with a grandmother or a, a cousin or an aunt or uncle. I did see many women who weren't coming with their parents, but they they did come with other family members. So I'm wondering if that was also at play there. When I, again, because it was a big facility and there were a lot of folks there, I focused on unaccompanied minors. These are, these are kids, boys, that did not come with any relatives. Mm, okay. So they didn't come with a grandma. They literally came by themselves. And so what what is the future goal of Rise to Reunite? And what what do you envision the, the organization doing moving forward? What we want to do is we want to fundraise and gather resources so we can hire more attorneys that will be providing these services down in Tijuana on a full-time basis. Mm -hmm. Um, We need expertise, like you mentioned. The laws are changing constantly. So you do need to have a strong foundation in immigration law because, again, the the laws are changing constantly. So you need to have that background in order to be able to keep up and be able to provide accurate advisory work um, to these families. So what we want to do is, again, fundraise and get resources so we can hire this attorney, these attorneys, to serve down there on a permanent basis. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think that this happens, this is a model that's frequently deployed at the border as having volunteer attorneys come down every week and the idea is that people will be so sympathetic to the need that there will always kind of be volunteers there turning in every week, but really that's not the ideal system. We, we do need people who are trained immigration lawyers, experienced immigration lawyers at the border so that people are receiving the most quality legal services that they can get. So I really applaud this effort. No, I know. It's true. It's true. I mean, I think there's a lot of well-meaning folks that want to come down and assist, um, but the need is great. So we've actually, you know, I know that the organization has um, actively made very specific requests that if you speak the language, you can come. If you have legal training, you can come. If you've done political observations, you can come. I mean, the needs have to be very specific precisely because, I mean, there's a lot of damage to be done too, right? Again, exactly, yeah. misinformation. So yeah. they come and travel thousands of miles hoping for a better future, when in reality they know that they're not, you know, once they get the legal advice, they become aware that they weren't eligible. But the probabilities of them being able to pass their political peer interview are very slim. Yeah, I think either way, people deserve to know the realities of, of their situation and to have a competent legal professional give them that assessment. And I think that you were right that people are well-intentioned, and I think that that's good. I don't think the volunteer efforts should stop. I just think that there should be, at the core, a group of really experienced immigration lawyers that can ensure quality services are given.
talking about this too, is that I don't think people are fully aware that this really is a humanitarian crisis. There right. are international treaty laws that are being violated left and right. Yes. The United States has, you know, has signed on and have taken, well, we have a duty to protect these people. It's under law. Right. These treaties mandate it too. Mm-hmm. And folks are completely ignorant about that. And I'm talking about officials, you know, in the border patrol on both sides, in the U.S. and Mexico, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they're, I, you know, according to them, I've actually had one, um, one, official from Mexican side saying, you know, what are we supposed to do with so many people? You know, and our comment was, you abide by the law. Mm-hmm. You know, having so many folks here does not justify you violating the law because you cannot handle it. This is an issue of enforcement, but that does not give you the right to violate the law simply because you are finding yourself overwhelmed. Well, I just think also what, what's always missing from this conversation is the larger context of U.S. intervention that's creating this larger numbers of people migrating. And I think if we want to cure the problem of, you know, border officials feeling overwhelmed with migration, then U.S. intervention needs to cease in Latin America so that economies can better thrive. I, don't, I really don't think that that conversation is happening at all. I think people are not putting the situation in context. So there's a lot of negativity. There's definitely negative profiling of these, of these individuals that are coming um, seeking help. And obviously, the moment you dehumanize the people who are coming, then it's much easier for them to feel justified in breaking, you know, the law and not giving them the protections that they that they deserve. I found that really fascinating too. I mean, there's the first time that, I, that one of the first times that we went out to the border, we were crossing with. To, with actually with 10 families. Most of them were single. I think there were like two couples. But most of them were single women with children. And I was quite shocked at the way that we were treated. We weren't treated harshly. We were literally treated with the level of indifference that I've never felt in my life. I'm a woman of color. I'm an attorney. I think a lot of us have suffered discrimination or people just looking down on us in one way or, or, or the other. And I've never felt that I've never felt that people were looking at me in a way that they forgot that I was a human being. Wow. And it, it was really, it really, it really impacted me for a couple of weeks. I mean, it still yeah, does, and that's why I keep going sure. back. Mm-hmm. Because that experience made me realize that these folks are not seen as human. Yeah, this is a crime and against humanity. It was, it was shocking, you know, to see the children there, to see us. And someone told me, too, like, well, were you guys dressed as lawyers? I'm like, one, yes, we were dressed as lawyers. But two, does that matter? Do you have to be dressed as an attorney? Do you have to be dressed professionally in order to be able to have others see you as a human being? Right. Think... These are children. These are folks. These are, um, while we were waiting in line, I'll give you another example. When we were waiting in line, um, they told us, you know, they told us, you need to take a number and you can't come back later. And the attorneys from our local level were documenting all of the you know, violations that were taking place. Mm-hmm. So we finally were able, for lack of a better word, negotiate with one of the border patrol officers and saying, it's like, okay, you know, some of these families will leave, but can you help us process these two kids? This was in, um, we have two unaccompanied minors. One of them was about six, um, 17 years old, and actually one, one of them had her older sister there who's 19 and had a very three-year-old with her. However, because she's 19, she doesn't have, even if she's not actually qualified to serve as um, a parental figure for the 17-year-old. So she's actually the 17-year-old with an unaccompanied minor. So we 
to make sure that these families did that just these two sisters and a little boy stayed together because that's all they had. Mm-hmm. They did little orphans that were traveling to central um to central Mexico. Um, they told us that they were going to process them, and literally, we were there the entire day, mm-hmm. and nothing was done. But while we were waiting, I remember stepping out of line and going to get some waters, because, you know, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, sun is hot, and we were getting dehydrated. So I stepped out of line and went to get waters. And when I came back, there was a young woman that was standing next to us with the, you know, with the, with the two-year-old. And, you know, I was just like, hey, how did you get here? About, you know, how, how are you standing with us, et cetera? And she told me, she said, well, I got in line, I went inside, and then they told me to come back out. And it's like, well, did they tell you nothing? They just told me to come back out. So they literally just, like, left her. And this woman, was, uh, got, this is a woman that had been traveling for over two and a half weeks from Guatemala, made to the border, and was just basically left there. So they didn't process either one of them. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we basically had to hustle and try to figure out where do we where do we place them now? We needed to find shelter. We needed to make sure that they were in contact again with other, you know, with an attorney to be able to offer some guidance. And, you know, when they told her to stand there, it wasn't, it wasn't even like they were bothered with her. It was just like, stand there. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to explain it. It was just, it was, it was such a onerous task for them to just tell her to stand there. Yeah, well, to be honest, I mean, this kind of behavior and attitude, I think, is replicated all the time within detention centers and prisons. This indifference to human life is something that I see every day, Um, you know, just with things like even referring to a person as an inmate, referring to, you know, meals as chow, as chow time, uh, as feeding, you know, I think that that attitude of dehumanization is something that is normal to the culture of prisons, detention centers, and institutions like Border Patrol. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm still wrapping myself around. Every time I think about this experience, it really does um, take me back. Because, you know, I agree. There's definitely that. But this was taking place on the outside. You know, for all intents and purposes, these people weren't inmates. They weren't going to get processed. Literally, these are individuals that are in the street. So it's almost like you're walking through society and you are seen as non-human. Right. I'd actually would equate it, I would actually equate it, I mean, yes, you're right. All your points that you raise are, are, are on point. Um, but it's almost like seeing a homeless in the street, right? There's, it's almost like it's easier to turn away than it is to address the fact that there's a human being in need. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely occurring as well. So I don't want to be mindful of your time. I don't want to take up too much of your time. And just wanted to ask you if there was anything else that you wanted to discuss before signing off. No, not at all. I mean, actually, I want to thank you for your time. Um, right to Reunite continues to work really hard. Um, we have we have a lot of other programs in mind. We have a lot of artists, for example, that are, are you know, gathering resources and bringing awareness, going to interviews, and making sure that the conversation doesn't stop. You know, because people are focusing a lot on, I guess, the caravan and whatnot. And I don't think the, the, the conversation, some of the conversation has kind of disappeared. And you need to provide a context that some of these families have been separated and the U.S. has had no way to put them, to reunite them. Mm-hmm. This is something that they created mm-hmm. and are not taking responsibility to reunify mm-hmm. families that they deliberately, you know, separated. Mm-hmm. That's one. And then second, again, you know, shout out. Please support we need to have trained resources. We have to have trained attorneys. We need to have the adequate resources to be able to provide these families with the services that they need. Because if they don't, we see 
Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, yo, my dogs go heat, control the whole street And when it's time to bust, they 